Well, let's pray together and then we'll dive back into what is this, week six? Can you believe it? Week six already. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our opportunity to open your word, to look through it, to examine what it has to say about the third person of the Trinity. Even though the Trinity has been so debated by people, we want to simplify what the scripture says and it has led to many aberrant and heretical ideas about you. Thank you, God, for the mystery of a triune eternal fellowship that we are studying and the individual persons of the Godhead that we've worked on already, the, the section on, on theology proper that we've dealt with. Thank you for that, for our study of Christology not, not long ago. And now, God, for our study of pneumatology, which helps us round out all that we can do to gather biblical data and understand the work of the Spirit. As we started this session some six times, uh, six lectures ago, we recognize that the divergent roles within the Godhead certainly give us a, a more difficult time uh, understanding what the uh, specifics are of the workings of the Spirit. We have enough, obviously, to draw conclusions, but knowing the Spirit is there to glorify Christ, and Christ is our Lord and our Master, the one to whom we uh, look to and, and seek to learn from, and the Spirit is going to facilitate His glorification in our minds as we study and learn. Uh, we just recognize that, and we approach this study for the sixth time with uh, with that understanding. And, and I pray that all that we study tonight, all that we look at tonight, would be helpful in solving some of the mysteries and some of the misunderstandings that do uh, seem to be pervasive within the body of Christ regarding the common grace uh, that you bestow on mankind. So may this be an enlightening time, a helpful time, a time that will allow us to maybe sort things out that we talk about and run into and see and, and even uh, uh, encounter in our everyday conversations about the things that uh, sometimes are hard to make sense of because we don't think through the common grace dispensed through the activity of the Spirit. So I pray you'd help us tonight in this, make it a great night, uh, keep our minds keen and focused and allow us to leave uh, not only edified by the information, but challenged to live more like your son, Jesus Christ, because of it. Be with us now in every aspect of our study in Jesus' name. Well, as I've mentioned, we're going to talk about the common grace of, um, of God tonight, specifically through the activity of the Holy Spirit. And I find in a lot of even looking back at my own teaching uh, to you folks and, and others who preceded you, uh, not a lot of attention is given to this. So this is a good, a good hour for us just to look at what the Bible says regarding common grace and the application of that grace uh, throughout mankind in the work of the Spirit. So let's define a few of these terms and let's do it broadly, starting with letter A here, grace. To think about common grace, we want to step back and think of this word grace a little bit more broadly than the Sunday school answer we generally give when someone says, what is grace? And people say, well, unmerited favor. Let's think it through, though. The idea of grace, and without boring you through all the linguistics of it, both in Old and New Testament, let's at least, for the sake of our time, truncate it to saying just a couple things about the idea of the positive, the the, the, the most general, if you think without theological terms, in terms of grace, uh, we're talking about things that are, are bringing happiness, joy, good, good fortune, the, the well-being of someone. To talk about grace, even in its non-technical usage in the Old Testament, that's how we understand this. And, and to kind of move more into a focused New Testament uh, view of this or a biblical view of this, we can say that we describe in Scripture without giving any evidence for this, but we can see this even in your own memory of Scripture, that it is the description of God's kindness uh, dispensed because God is kind. And in His kindness, that act is described as grace. God is gracious, we would say, because in His kindness, in His character, in His nature, He does things that are gracious, kind, good, favorable. Um, we also add this 
element to it, which does get to the Sunday school answer, and that is that all of this discussion regarding God's kindness has to be understood as at least in an absolute sense as unearned. In a relative sense, we could say, okay, we get some of it, you know, the reward of righteousness is, you know, riches, long life, and honor. We see those passages in the Bible. But in an absolute sense, we always think of grace as unearned because we're talking about a completely, perfectly holy God dealing with, at least as we think of mankind, with all of them since Adam and Eve, sinful, fallen, and rebellious in varying varying degrees. We understand that. But when God gives good, when God gives something kind, when God brings joy, pleasure, good fortune, or anything positive to human beings, we'd say that's in an absolute sense, that's unmerited. It's, un, it's unearned. It's not something that God owes anyone. And we could look at all those passages, which we've looked at in the past uh, in various studies, but of course, none of it uh, is owed. God owes no one anything as it relates to good or kindness. So that's just a quick review of grace, and hopefully we can do that without proving that to you with looking up number of passages. But let's talk now about common grace and give you a definition, my definition. You know, I think all systematic theologies will give you something that looks something like this. But let's define it this way, just phrase by phrase. It's a short sentence, but it is the generous and unearned, because we're talking about God's work toward people here, the generous and unearned provision, you can see there that's an active sense, and care, that might even be a passive sense, that he sustains and protects and people don't get all the bad that they deserve. The generous and unearned provision and care that is dispensed by God, we're crediting this now to an active God. We're not deists. We don't believe that God just wound up the world and let it go. We believe that God is, is active in his creation. It is the generous and unearned provision and care and all the things that come under that, that heading dispensed by God and specifically in our study to the unregenerate. Now we understand that you know God's grace extends to the regenerate, but tonight I just want to look at specifically how he relates to the world, to everyone. So common grace, defined in a simple sentence, the generous and unearned provision and care dispensed by God, an active God, a God who's active in his creation, to unregenerate, unsaved people, people that are not in Christ. They're separated from Christ. They're outside of Christ. They're guilty before God. They're not forgiven. This may clear up, clear up some things. Just give you one verse just to get us started here up on the screen. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. Look at the way this is put here. Here's verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. When anger is deserved, he's slow to get there. That's even the New Testament word, macrothumia, thumia, thumas, hot, macro, long, big. It takes him a long time to get hot. It takes him a long time to get angry. Macrothumia, that's the word for patience, by the way, in Greek. That idea of a God who he, he should be mad at a lot of things, but he's slow to get there. He's gracious and merciful. Mercy is not giving people what they deserve. He is abounding in steadfast love. That's his idea of, of the, the Hebrew word hesed, that he has this faithful, enduring, tenacious love. Covenant love is often called. Verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all. Now we often want to think, well, what kind of all are we talking about? Are we talking about, as we would in the New Testament, you know, slave-free, barbarian, Scythian? We're not talking about that. It gets clear in the next phrase. And his mercy is over all that he has made. Everything. Now we're talking about all without exception. (laughs) There is this sense in which his mercy, his kindness in varying degrees and his fuse, if you will, his shortness of of anger or length of anger is, is given in some measure to everything that he makes. That's the idea of common grace. And as we would define it, we would say it's the generous, unearned provision and care dispensed by God to unregenerate people. Psalm 145, that's a good heading verse for us tonight as we think about the Lord being good to all and his mercy over all that he's made. Common misunderstanding. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me, uh, after you jot that down, to 1 John chapter 3. 
One of the problems I find and the questions I often get as a pastor or working on the radio as a, you know, answering Bible questions, this is a common misunderstanding in that we, we so want to see God, unfortunately, as a kind of a one-dimensional character. As I often say, if you do listen to my question and answer show, you'll, you'll hear, you know, I, I often talk about people viewing God as a computer program, you know, as some kind of a, you know, combination lock, as something that only works in these really mechanized ways. And I get where we're coming from in terms of thinking about, well, God has his people, and then there's those that are not his people. And I understand all of that. But we're missing a broader view of God and how he deals with folks. So in 1 John 3, let's just kind of start with where we get this misunderstanding from. And this is a right understanding of God seeing humanity, as the critics have said, and I've quoted this many times, but people talk about, I don't like God bifurcating people into the haves and have-nots, into the loves and the loved and the unloved, into the righteous and the wicked. Well, I can't help that. That's what the Bible says. And here's how it's put, verse 8 through 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, now we're looking kind of backwards from evidence to reality. Of course, the fruit of someone's life, you'll know them by their fruits. So he's saying, look at their lives. If they make a practice of sinning, they fall short of God's, God's standards. That person is of the devil. They belong to him. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's what he's like. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not only the effects of sin, but our practice and participation in sinful behavior. Verse 9, no one born of God, if God has done something in our lives, makes a practice of sinning. The trajectory of their lives changes. They don't live like they did before. They don't do whatever they can get away with. They live a different life, even if it's like, as we study in the book of Daniel, if you have to stand apart, whatever, they are willing to do the right thing when no one's looking. It's a different relationship with the law, with the right and wrong, because God has changed them from the inside out. For God's seed, middle of verse 9, abides in him. There's something organic, something authentic that starts from the inside out. That's, by the way, why our testimonies, especially for those of you that grew up in the church like I did, need to be carefully analyzed because kids like me grew up in the church with an external conformity to the rules of what, 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 your, what your parents say you should do and your Sunday school teacher and your youth pastor. It's easy to conform to that from the outside in. And as I often say on that little one-liner, you know, there's kids that sometimes can be sitting on the outside, but they are standing on the inside. And there's that sense of conformity in growing up in the church. Well, real conversion is, is evidence when the change begins from the inside out. And I've given you my testimony many times. I don't want to bore you with it, but one of the things that really opened my eyes to this is watching when I went to Bible school of all places as a non-Christian, seeing my roommate do things I thought, no one's assigning that for you. <laughs> You're getting up in the morning and praying and reading your Bible and no one's making is that for a class. I mean, I didn't understand why, why you are driven from the inside to do these things. And that was the beginning of God working on my life to show a kind of, of organic Christianity that didn't come from some authority in my life. But here were people who were doing this because God had gotten a hold of them from the inside. And that change in their lives is the work of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. Organic internal change. He cannot keep on sinning. It's an impossibility to live the way they did before because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who the children of God are and who are uh, and who the children of the devil are right you, the d- distinction is clear by this it is evident who are the children of god and who are the children of the devil whoever does not practice righteousness is not of god nor is the one who does not love his brother now we're always concerned about the middle of this okay great you got the righteous you got the unrighteous 
which they get right with God, and they're of God, not by their good works, but because God's seed abides in them. And you got those whose seed does God's seed does not abide in them, and we're always wondering about the middle ground. How sinful can I be and still be a Christian? How righteous can a non-Christian be and still be a non-Christian? And, and the Bible doesn't give us any clarity about that here other than the practice of continual lifestyle. And when we look at that distinction, we we don't create a third category. The Bible doesn't give us that allowance. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Either you're rightly related to God and your life is consistently practicing and increasing sanctification, you're becoming more like Christ, or you're just doing what everybody else is doing, whatever you can get away with, and you live with a standard that is something other than God's truth. The point, though, is in a passage like this, we start to think in terms of black and white, category A and category B, Christian, non-Christian. You can't be sort of a Christian. You can't be sort of pregnant. It's the idea of either you're in or you're out. Two categories, bifurcated humanity. Therefore, God looks from heaven, he looks in this room right now, and he sees this crowd of people, and he knows whose are his, to put it in the words of Hebrews, and he knows whose are not. But there's no three categories here. There may be brand new Christians who became a Christian last week, and there may be very good and moral non-Christians who are exemplary in terms of being good citizens or moral people or whatever, but their hearts are not changed. But you've got in the room only two kinds of people. That is a biblical understanding that I hope you all carry around in your theology. And if you do, you say now, God is all involved in these people's lives. And these people, mm, God's, you know, I don't know. God's, I guess we are deists, practical deists in looking at those people's lives. Well, I, I don't know what his relationship is to them, but clearly he's not involved in their lives. He certainly doesn't answer their prayers. He's not doing good things for them. That's a problem. It is further exacerbated by passages like this. Habakkuk chapter 1, I hear this quoted all the time in relation to the discussion of common grace or the misunderstanding of common grace. But Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says, You, speaking of God, who are of purer eyes than to see evil, and you cannot look at wrong. So if you're saying, okay, here's someone that is not in Christ. They are not forgiven. They are not, they are not understood as being justified. God does not see them as having their sins forgiven. Then they're unrighteous. You've got the children of God. Children of, if they're the children of the devil and they're not forgiven, right? no matter how moral they may be on the outside, you've got to see a God in a passage like this saying, well, I, I, can't, even, I can't even look at you. Now, again, what color are God's eyes? Answer, doesn't have any. This is anthropomorphic language. We put God in, in, a, in a literary package that looks like a human being, anthropos, man, morphe form. We talk in terms as though he has human form, but he doesn't. So this idea of looking at evil, we begin to think like he's a computer program. I can look at my children. I can't look at non-Christians because in my mind, they're children of the devil. They're evil. And my eyes are too pure to, 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 to observe them. I don't even look at them. That's the kind of simplistic thinking in a passage like this that leads people to misunderstand God's great activity among the unregenerate because God is a God of common grace, as we'll see. One of the answers to this problem in Habakkuk 1, you're saying, well, you're quoting this, but just because it's an anthropomorphic statement doesn't mean that it's not true. Well, it is true. It's the true complaint of Habakkuk. Do you know the book of Habakkuk? Little book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the prophet near the end of, the, uh, of Judah's uh, judgment by God. They're being judged nationally by the kingdom of Babylon. Habakkuk, being a religious guy and a righteous guy, looks at Babylon and he complains. Matter of fact, here's the rest of verse 13. I didn't give it all to you. Here it is up on the screen. He asks this question. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous? than he. Here's what he's saying. 
I don't like the fact that you're sending in the Babylonians who worship idols and they have false gods and we see compromised Jews who at least still name the name of Yahweh and they still keep the Sabbath and they still bring their sacrifices. I understand they're not living all that righteously, but when you compare the Jews of the 6th century BC to the Babylonians of the 6th century BC, how in the world can you use the Babylonians as national winners in a war over, over Israel, over Judah? It's not right. How do you let traitors win? How are you silent when the wicked swallow up those? That's a, that's a metaphor for a battle that is won, a war that is won. How, how is that the case? How can the pagans who capture men like Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, and Daniel, who name them after their Babylonian gods, how can you have those people be the victors and Daniel and his three friends be the slaves? Just not right. You understand that the question it is predicated on the fact that that's what's happening, right? <laughs> they are winning in battle. Recently, if you read the daily Bible reading, I wrote a little blurb the day that Isaiah called Cyrus, the Persian king, his anointed. I don't know if you read my comments every day, but if you read my comment on that, that's a fascinating idea. And I took you to Proverbs in my comments on that saying, isn't it interesting how God takes the, the heart of the king and channels it like a course of water? Isn't it amazing how God even calls the pagan Persian king Cyrus his own anointed? Which anointed means what? Someone who's had the oil poured over his head. It's symbolic of someone who's a king, a prophet, or a priest. Here is a king. In other words, a lot is said in the little word there, Mashiach, which is the word for anointed. He is a king because I put him in, in a place of a king. I've made him now someone who's going to come in and do the work. Of, of, a, of a conqueror, in this case, the succeeding kingdom that followed Babylon, and I'm, I'm in charge. I'm doing this, and I'm letting him win for a time, 70 years, until the, you know, the years in the doghouse are over for Judah, and then I'll take them back to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah. What's the point? Here is God completely in control, and what he's doing is using pagan kings in his, in his uh, sovereign plan to bring judgment on his own people, and Habakkuk is complaining about that. He is actually saying, how can you use in your plan somebody as sinful, in this case, as Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon? The point is, though, that he is. God's answer to Habakkuk in the three chapters as Habakkuk lodges his complaint and God responds to him is, in fact, proof that God does bless, in this case, brings victory for the, oppo the opposing side. Okay, there are good guys and bad guys. There are God's children and people that are not his children. does not mean that God is not actively involved uh, in the lives of those that are not his people. Psalm 5, here's another passage that we often enlist to think about. Well, you know, God is not involved. Look what he says here. I mean, here's some scathing words from the psalmist. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Now, this is not just Habakkuk bringing a complaint. This is the psalmist saying, Listen, you don't take delight in wickedness. Of course you don't. Evil may not dwell with you. Well, there you go. God has nothing to do with evil. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Okay, well, how in the world then can the non-Christian who's filled with hubris and pride and arrogance stand before God? God can't have that person in his presence. Can't stand before him. You hate all evildoers. They're not, they're not your, your children. You're not going to interact with them. You destroy those who speak lies. 
The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. You read a passage like that, you think about non-Christians at your workplace or whatever, or you watch the news tonight and you see the criminals that made the hit parade today in Southern California, and you look at them and you say, well, that's what God thinks. He has nothing to do with them. He's certainly not giving them any good gifts or favor or protection or care because that's God's commentary on these folks. Well, we've got to understand words like stand and evil may not dwell with you in light of other passages that would make us understand we don't literally mean that God does not have interaction with evil, and we can use the most extreme example in Job chapter 1, which blows people's minds. And they call in and say, what is going on with a passage like this? Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, the, the, the angelic beings which is a way to describe the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, the entire class of angelic beings. They came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, right, the adversary, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, get out of here, you sinner. I can't have you in my presence. Is that what he says? He wants to dialogue about Job. Hey, where have you come from? Satan answered to the Lord, said, oh, I'm going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down uh, about on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Something you never want the Lord to, to bring up in a conversation with Satan, if you're Job. <laughs> that there is none like him on the earth. He's blameless, an upright man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. What's happening here? You read Psalm 5, you read Habakkuk 1, and I could list a whole bunch of other ones about God's disposition toward the evil, the wicked. You, think, you see things like stand. And you say, here is the most evil being in the universe standing before the Lord. And they're dialoguing. And he's not rebuking him. He's not casting him out of his presence. All of that. I get that. When you you have words like stand or dwell with, you need to understand that in the Psalms, in particular, where we see a lot of that language, we're talking about the, the, the big picture, the reality of what these individuals will be. In other words, will Satan stand before God? Will he be, here's another word, established before God? Will the Lord really dwell with Satan? Now, these are words of the permanent disposition of God and the reality in the long term. Of course they won't. Matter of fact, the passage ended in in Psalm 5 by saying he's going to judge them. He's going to destroy them. But for now, he's having conversation. He's making deals with them. In this case, with the, 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 the archetypal evil one in the universe. That's a God who does not treat people, even evil people, like a computer program. You know, I can't hear you. I'm, I'm God. I'm holy. You're evil. You're not in Christ. I have nothing to do with you. With that as our foundation, understanding that we cannot take passages about God's disposition toward evil or be toward, toward unforgiven fallen people as the, as the absolute kind of, of, of mechanical reaction to all sinful people that clearly doesn't mean that there's not interaction that there's not, as we'll see here, grace given to these folks, then we'll never understand common grace. So there's our foundation. Let's move on. Number two, let's talk about this. And some of this will be review, at least the passages we've already looked at. But let's talk about the Holy Spirit's grace of life. Let's just get as broad as we can possibly get. How does God interact? Again, here's our definition to the unregenerate when it comes to life. Well, letter A, According to the Bible, and we've seen this many times, we've looked at passages like this, but I'll just put them up on the screen. He grants it. He is the giver of life. Job 33, 4, which just put it in the, the concise words of Job, but it is clearly taught throughout the scripture. We've looked at many of these in the past. It says, the spirit of God made me. The breath of the almighty gives me life. Now, because we've looked at in, in our earlier session, how the spirit is involved as the agent of creation and even the active 
part of creation. In Genesis 1-2, we can understand that's not just Christians that he gives life to. We're not talking here in these terms, just by way of contrast, although we can say this is true in John 6-63, it is the Spirit who gives life. If you remember that context, we looked that one up not long ago when it comes to the fact that they were hearing the words of Christ and they weren't getting it, they were rejecting it. And Jesus said, you know, the problem is the flesh counts for nothing. It's the spirit who gives life. And what I'm saying to you is spirit. In other words, I'm giving you words of life. You're rejecting them. The spirit has to quicken your mind. And all I'm saying is beyond that, just going back to Job 33, the spirit of God is involved in giving people life, which though this is a specific reference, that's why I put it in red, to an extension of that life. He gives spiritual life in that passage in terms of illumination, which we'll look at in the future series, installments in this series. The idea though, and the principle is true, he gives life. He gives physical life. And it's another usage here in red, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, when he's speaking about the work of the old covenant indicting us before God. The letter, that's the reference to the Old Testament law, killing, which gives us the indictment, the law of sin and death, as it's put over there in Romans 8. It is the idea that because the law spells out the stipulations of what is righteous and I fail, that leaves me guilty and indicted, but the spirit gives life. Those ideas, though, certainly are an extension of the most basic way which the Spirit gives life, and that is he gives physical life. Every body that is animated by life, as we studied earlier, is not just, you know, it's not just Christians. Every non-Christian has been given life by the Spirit. That is a true statement of every non-Christian. Uh, it creates physical bodies. I think we looked at this when we were talking about the agency of the Spirit in creation. Psalm 104.30, when you sent forth your Spirit... They're created. Yes, I remember this now. We did look this one up, or at least we put it on the screen. And you renew the face of the ground. Now we're talking about material things. And the context of Psalm 104 is extending beyond just human beings, but all creations. And and by that, I mean all creatures. Speaking of animals and even the things that grow out of the ground. The Spirit of God is active in bringing physical things to reality. And again, we're not deists. God didn't create the world and walk away. God is actively involved in the spirit himself in passages like this are credited for creating physical things. Your puppy, your hamster, your, 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 your cat. You have a cat? Your cat. All of these things, including your hands and the hands and eyeballs and hair follicles of every non-Christian you know, the Bible says the agency or an active participant in the creation of that body was the spirit of God. He grants life. He creates physical bodies. And and I put up the most classic text on this, Psalm 139 up on the screen. This is not just a admission of what the Spirit does for Christians or for the elect or for people that are in grace with God, but everyone. You could say this is true of everyone. If not, how else does it happen? Right? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Matter of fact, most non not most, but a lot of non-Christians you know are, seem to be more fearfully and wonderfully made than you. you. You lament from time to time. Sorry. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, a metaphor for your mother's body. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when there was yet none of them. God is active in the creation of the physical container in which every human spirit that the spirit himself is created uh, has. And, and because our cells regenerate, every cell in your body, every seven years, right? You don't have any cells, apparently, so I'm told, that were there seven years ago. The active process of renewing the ground 
if you will, to use Psalm 104, is an active participation of the Spirit's work. In other words, your non-Christian neighbor, your non-Christian relative, your non-Christian boss at work, they wouldn't exist. Their fingernails wouldn't grow unless the common grace of God through the activity of the Holy Spirit didn't grant that person physical life as well as spiritual life. And by spiritual life, I don't mean regenerate life. I just mean being the software that they are. God grants life. The Spirit creates physical bodies. And then let's just say it is broadly as we can in terms of everyday life. All life is dependent on the Holy Spirit. All life in every component is dependent on the Spirit. And I want you to look at this passage with me. I know we're familiar with it, but I want you to look at it afresh from the angle of the sustaining work of God. And because of our understanding of the Trinitarian roles, we know that the active person of the Godhead on planet Earth is the person of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God is in heaven dwelling in unapproachable light. I understand he's omniscient, but in the person of the spirit, he's active on earth. And as Paul describes our dependence on God, you can read this if you'd like to specifically. It's the spirit that we're specifically and technically talking about. Acts 17.22, Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus. He's in Athens. That's like the, uh, the court that assembled in the first century, and it had been going on for some time by the time Paul got there, that was uh, the place where the professors, if you will, would hang out. The Athenian elite, the intellectual elite, the philosophers. This was a place that was a court. They would decide things and adjudicate things. And he stands there amongst the intellectual elite of the day, and he says, Men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. This is Acts 17, 23. Are you with me on this? I found also an altar with this this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What a great intro to this, this evangelistic message he's about to give. And you can imagine, in Athens, they had all these idols up, and then you had an idol that was to the idol that we may have forgotten, the God we may have forgotten, the idol to the unknown God, which made a lot of sense to them because they, they believed in, in as polytheists in a multiplicity of gods. And if there's all these gods, we don't want to miss one, particularly if he's important and can hurt us. So we'll put up a, a, an altar to the unknown God, and that'll be the one where if we missed any, you know, it's the etc. in the religious practices practice of the, the, the Greeks, the unknown God. And he says, I want to tell you about the real God because to you, he is unknown. So what you don't know, I'm going to tell you all about. Starting in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, even there, we understand, as we've studied, this is through the agency of the active participation of the Holy Spirit, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he's in charge of it all does not live in temples made by man. In other words, your whole idea of putting these idols up doesn't even make any sense. Nor is he served by human hands. You bring him food, you bring them offerings, even that. It doesn't make any sense. He doesn't need anything, and you're doing it to appease the gods, and it's, it's absurd. Since he himself gives to all mankind life, and here's our play on words. What's the word in Greek for, for breath? What is it? Pneuma. And pneuma translates not only breath, but spirit. He gives to everyone Uh, life and breath he himself gives to all mankind is that just christian no obviously non-christian life and breath and everything everything whatever goes in that category that's that's everything verse 26 and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place you want to talk about the activity of the spirit not only your non-christian co-worker Not only is the spirit the product of the Holy Spirit's work, not only is his physical container 
the product of the Spirit's design and work. Not only is the regeneration of the cells in his body, the active participation of the Spirit, but the Bible says that he is your co-worker in your office, is part of God's providential divine plan and activity in planning that guy to be born at that time, to be in your office and to be a part of that thing, that company or whatever he works for. That is God's doing. How, how involved is God in that man's life? About as far from deism as you can get. Why did he do that? Why did he pick places for people? Why? Because he wants, verse 27, that they should seek for God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God wants you to, to find him. Yet, actually, not, he's not far from each of us. Well, how close is he? He says, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, now he quotes a, a Greek poet, Aratus, and he says, for we indeed are his offspring. He made us. You guys even admit that, he says. Being then God's offspring, if you were made by God, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. What a step down would that be? An image formed uh, by the art and imagination of man. Now, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed. And of this, he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You don't need a burning in the bosom. You're not guessing at this. Faith is not a leap into darkness. We have reasons for us to put our trust in Christ as the forgiveness for our sins, and we need to repent. That picture, though, of God working in every being to create them, giving them life and breath and everything, is the picture of the activity of the Holy God, the triune uh, roles and, and, and activities of the triune God help us to understand how immediately and how immediate and close the Spirit's work is in all of that. All of life is dependent on the Spirit. You start thinking even the most rank non-Christian you can imagine, you know, as you watch, you know, whatever, the learning channel and the jail lockup shows or whatever, and you picture people that you just seethe when you hear about the things that they've done, that person growing his fingernails, you know, tattooing himself in his cell, all of that person created by, sustained by, given breath, given everything he has by the activity of the triune God and specifically his encounter with the third person of the spirit. That can help you with the dichotomy of, of mankind thinking, well, God's active in our lives. He's certainly not active in non-Christians lives. Just think of God and the spirit in particular as the one giving the grace of life. Number three, let's talk about God's gracious communication. More specifically, the spirit's part in communicating even with your non-imaginary non-christian person you're thinking of which is not imaginary he's real whoever that is maybe it's you i don't know that non-christian communicating let's talk about this first category via nature we've talked about this in our study of bibliology revelation we've even dealt with it a little bit in our study in pneumatology but just to review again if we think about to step backwards the spirit's activity in the creation of nature Thinking of something outside now, instead of being knitted together by God and God being active in the sustaining and creation of your non-Christian that you're envisioning. Now think of everything external to that non-Christian. Go outside of him. The Bible says everything in nature, of course, as we learn, was created by God. Remember this phrase? The earth was out form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God, Rauk, that Hebrew word we looked at, is hovering, fluttering. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. It's moving about. The picture is the, the creative work of the spirit hovering over the waters and then everything gets created. Whatever that means, and we said we don't understand a lot of what that means, obviously. We have to speculate. But the activity of the spirit is creating everything in nature. So we know the Spirit creates all that we see. Now, 
This says Psalm 33, 6. It says, by the word, just to review again, and it's just to get the big picture, the word, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their host. The host there, that was the picture of the, the stars, the, the, the planets, the things that we look up at. So God's spirit, by the breath of his spirit, which in Hebrew, just like in Greek, it's a play on words, the wind, the spirit, the breath, the spirit of God makes all of that. So everything external to the person, the non-Christian, created by, by God's spirit. Now, how does that communicate? Well, we know this passage, but let's review it. The heavens, the host, that the spirit made are now, the Bible says, declaring the kabod of the Lord. What's kabod mean? The weightiness, the importance of God. Even when they don't understand that, there's some weightiness. Take any non-Christian, unless they're the most cynical, skeptical, negative person, put them outside on a clear night in Big Bear, away from the lights, in a cabin, or outside on the porch of the cabin, and look up at all the stars which is probably not as good as it used to be, but pick a place in some dark part and with a new moon and the sea, just to look at all of that, they feel the kabod of something, which is transcendent. It's beyond themselves. That communication, that act right there at that moment, the Bible says is the creation by the spirit and the declaration that comes from that book of nature, if you will, that, that the spirit made. The spirit is communicating with that. We didn't need all that. We didn't need all that. The spirit and God, the triune God could have made any kind of planet for us to live in. We could have looked up every night, it could be black. And yet he creates what he creates in part to speak, not just to you, but to speak to non-Christians as well. The sky above proclaims God's handiwork. Here are the verbs, declare, proclaim, to make it even more clear in a poetic way. Day to day pours out speech. Everything that the spirit made is now communicating every day with non-Christians. And night to night reveals knowledge. Night to night reveals knowledge. Things are learned. No speech. There's no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The Jews writing this here in the Old Testament made this, this thought in this last phrase here in verse 4. Everyone's getting this message. Everyone's learning. Everyone's hearing something. Now, what do they hear? They don't hear enough, obviously, many of them, to be called to Christ and, and the faith and repentance and, and trust in a, in a resurrected Christ. But they get some transcendent communication that leads to something that they recognize is beyond them. And transcendent is the key word there. Something divine. That's why in every sculptor, every painter, every artist, even every backyard astronomer, that thing that draws them, even musicians, think about this, the, the draw of the transcendent experience that is divine taking place in, in every musician, everyone, even the rank, you know, think as grungy as you can get, that person, what they experience when they participate in the arts or when they participate in something that reflects their understanding of beauty in nature, whether it's science or art, is a reflection of the Holy Spirit's activity in speaking, the beauty of it, the gratification that comes from the beauty, the attraction to it. All of that is the Holy Spirit's gracious communication through his book of nature, through everything external to them. So I guess what I'm trying to say here in letter A is your non-Christian that you have in view is being spoken to by the Spirit, even though they don't credit the triune God for that, what attracts them to all of those things that are reflective of nature's beauty, nature's symmetry, whether it's sonically or visually, is all part of the Spirit's communication to the unregenerate world. Now, there's something external 
in the internal software of a human being. Catch that? There's something external within the internal software of a human being. I've tried to set this whole section up as the communication comes from outside. We look outside of ourselves in nature, in space, wherever we get this communication of the spirit coming to me. When I have something inside of me, just to speak spatially for a second, that is external to me. It's not me, but it's within me. We call it conscience. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, just to step back and set us up for this idea. You remember this verse. First of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes, to one's own, comes from someone's own interpretation. No one sat down and said, I think God should say this, or I think it's about this, or I'm perceiving God to be this way, so I'm going to write this rule about not coveting, or I'm going to write this rule about what... That's, that's not how it works. Scripture is not by the will of man. It's not produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God, and of course, we're speaking now to first century Christians about Old Testament prophets spoke here. They did speak, but they also had their spoken prophecies written. So we're talking about written prophecy as they were carried along by the Spirit. So we understood this as we looked at the Spirit's role in the Scriptures. And we talked about Theopneustos. We talked about God-breathed Scriptures. So the law of God, the rules of God, the truth of God revealed through the Spirit written down. Let's just think about that. Okay, great. So whether it's coveting, whether it's greed, whatever it might be, whether it's lust or the, the, the wrong of cheating, whatever it is, those things were revealed on paper by the work of the Spirit. He wrote a book. Now we read Romans 2, 14 and 15. Knowing that the author of the scripture is the spirit of God. Now I look at something external to who I am that is internal and within me. The Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have the God-breathed words on paper. They don't read Isaiah. They don't read Habakkuk. They don't read the Psalter. When they do by nature what the law requires, when they refrain from something that they know they could do, but they don't do it, And they're reflecting the law of God, even though they don't have the written law of God, which the Spirit wrote. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Who wrote the law? The Spirit of God, to be specific, carried men along to get proper data about God on paper for people to read. Now that same work of communication is taking place within people. But it's external to who they are ontologically. It's not who they are, but it's telling them who they should be. That's the conscience. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience, that's what we call it, also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Who does that? That's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit, writing the rules of God within the software of individuals to be a counterbalance to their own thoughts and reasonings, their own deliberation, is the communication of the Spirit. Now, it's a different kind of communication than we would refer to when we talk about the Spirit's work as we get into the Spirit's work in the Christian's life. But you've got to admit, if the Spirit of God writes the law on paper, and then the Bible says that that law, that same data, at least parts of it, the core of it, are imprinted on the conscience of human beings, telling people, either accusing them or excusing them in their behavior, that's the work of the Spirit. That's the Spirit's data. I'm not saying they're indwelt by the Spirit. I'm not saying they're regenerate. I'm just saying when your non-Christian co-worker has a pang of conscience over an item, there's an indirect secondary work of the Spirit that has taken place in his own heart. The Holy Spirit's gracious communication. 
Every time your non-Christian friend enjoys a great song, a piece of art, sits on a rock on the beach and takes in the salt air and enjoys a moment or uh, sees a sunset or has an idea that, that, that brings a great sense of, of, of motivation or one of conviction, one that tells him to go or one that tells him to stop. It's all a part of something you can trace back to the work of the Spirit. The Spirit communicates to non-Christians. Now, that has to be qualified, but I've just spent 10 minutes doing that. So we understand that I trust. Holy Spirit's restraint of evil. The Holy Spirit's restraint of evil, number four. When it comes to the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. We are talking about unregenerate people who are categorically described as, as we saw in 1 John, children of the devil, who consistently do things that fall short of the glory of God, that are not indwelt by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit and unregenerate people that are classified categorically as evil, how... What, clearly, we got to get to this point at some, at some point in the, in the lecture. Clearly, there's got to be some concern about their behavior. And while they're not Christians, what does common grace do in these people's lives? Now, in general terms, and I, I don't want to make too big of a case about this, but just to speak in a general passage, which your Bible, if you have an ESV, doesn't translate the way most translations have translated historically because there's ambiguity here. And for that reason, you can put, a, you know, you can put an asterisk by this point. I'll make the point, and I don't need this passage to make the point, but this point is an interesting point, and you can you know, look up in your logos all the lexical data in the Hebrew language about the word din, din in Hebrew, this text. But here's what the text says. Here's how it's translated in the ESV. Then the Lord said, and by the way, Genesis 6, Sunday school graduates, you know this is what's happening. We're about to go to the flood. We're about to call out Noah as an exemplary person, and God's going to save mankind through Noah. But Here's how it's set up. The Lord said, my spirit shall not, here's the translation of Dean in the ESV, abide in man forever. You probably grew up learning this verse, my spirit will not strive with or contend with man forever. And you can do all the word studies on Dean you want. And while there's some ambiguity as there are in a, you know, a portion, a segment of Hebrew words, because it's an ancient Semitic language, it's, you know, it's not as clean as Greek in terms of, of, of that sometimes. The idea is that, you know, at least within most lexical data, you could say the idea of contend or strive with or strive against is clearly within the pale of what the word means. And even in the ESV, I put CESV footnote because they did footnote that, it, and I don't know if they use the word strive or contend. 10, but clearly that's part of it. What's the idea here? He's about to destroy the world. Part of this is, and again, I don't want to get too far into this since it's for another anthropological study, which we'll do. That's our plan, at least, to talk about anthropology. Something cataclysmic took place at the flood. Things changed. All you have to do is just track. Every time we see the length of life of someone, there's no explanation for this, not any, any explicit explanation, goes from living a real long time, eight or 900 years, to now down to 120, 110, 100, and it keeps going down till it levels out in the Old Testament. And you can, and I've done this study, I think, before for some of you, when we see he died at a good old age. That keeps shifting in the Bible. <laughs> Talking about the patriarchs, a good old age was, uh, you know, 170 years old. By the time we get to David's life in the middle monarchy, it's a whole lot less. If you're 80, it's a good old age. But the, everything changed at the flood which I think, and it's a bit of speculative theology, but you can understand that there was such a cataclysmic change to the makeup of planet Earth that people could not survive on the planet anymore. So God takes people that are living almost a millennium on planet Earth prior to the flood, and he says, I'm done. I mean, if you can think of people 
that, I mean, even your own life. Think of all the creative ways before you became a Christian, I would hope, that you can do evil in this world. Give yourself now 10 or 15 times more time to perfect that, that participation in evil. I mean, think about the guys you know that are the absolute reprobates of society. Give them 10 times more life to figure out how to be all of that. The Bible here says something interesting. If the, the word dean in Hebrew is the word contend or strive, if that's what's meant in this passage, the Bible says God's done with fighting individuals in their sin, in the restraint of their sin. For all those years, he's going to cut their lifespan down by changing something in the atmosphere, which, again, we'll deal with this in anthropology, the waters above that radically changes things, which I think explains a lot in geology and paleontology and all of that. More on that another time. But the idea is we have God saying, I'm not going to strive and contend with man for that long. And the very next line is his days will be 120, which, again, is a debatable. We can talk about what that means we get to it. If that's a general statement, which I believe that it is. You've got here insight into the fact that the spirit of the Lord on planet earth is at work in every unregenerate person to do some kind of restraining of sin in their lives. Like I said, I don't need that text to prove my point, but that's a good place to start. Let's talk about it in terms of the work, not only within a person, but external to them. The spirit's work in God's people. Now, what's the, what's the topic on the table? Common grace. Common grace is God's good to unregenerate people. Now I'm talking about how is, how is a non-Christian's unregenerate behavior restrained by the Spirit's work within us? Hopefully you're one of us. You're a Christian. You're regenerate. How is it that we do some kind of restraint in the, in the larger population? Hopefully you're thinking immediately of passages that, that bring up metaphors about the fact that we do that restraining work even by our identification and the analogies of being salt and light and other things. Think of Ephesians 5 and Matthew 5, lots of passages. Well, let's, let me give you a classic text that's not without a little bit of linguistic ambiguity as well. And I wish Paul would have written more on this and given us all the statement. But let's turn to this, please. Second Thessalonians chapter 5. And it shouldn't be hard to figure out even what I've said. I mean, if you are a Christian growing in sanctification, you've been called a party pooper before, have you not? Yes, I have. You've been called, I don't know, whatever. Lots of things that even the comments about you being the stick in the mud is a comment that reveals that you are some kind of obstacle in the way of unfettered social whatever they want to do because you don't want to do it. You're a rebuke to them. You're a conviction to them. And because of your life as a distinctive contrast, you're doing something socially in the circle. Think about the parties your office would have if there were no people like you in the office. I don't know if that works for your office, but it doesn't work for my office, but hopefully that works for your office. I hope the parties would be just as, as under control and godly. I hope. I'm sure they probably be godly. Who knows? Second Thess 2, let's look at verse 3. 3 through 8. Now, the concern of the Thessalonians is there were people out there saying they'd missed the return of Christ. Paul's going, no, you didn't miss the return of Christ. If you miss the return of Christ, which for us, stage one, is the rapture, the harpazo, the catching up to be with the Lord in the air. Now, if the Lord came back and you missed it, you'd see things happening that aren't happening, Paul says. For instance, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, verse 3, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, here's the thing. You will not have the harpazo of the church unless you see these things happening that are going to take place on the earth during the tribulational period. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. And if you've studied the book of Revelation, this sounds real familiar. 
The lengthy explanation of all that is spelled out over, you know, chapters 6 through 19, proclaiming himself to be God, Antichrist, verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's the part I wish he would have expanded on. And you know what is, here's the key word, restraining him. You know what's restraining him now? So that he may not be, so that he may be revealed in his time. In other words, there's a restraint going on, and that restraint is keeping him from being revealed. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Obviously, we're not restraining all evil. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. People are doing crazy things in the name of doing whatever they want. Only he, this is a, now, let me say this. Did we not look at pronouns and we said that pneuma is a neuter noun and a noun that doesn't take a masculine pronoun, and yet we saw in the Upper Room Discourse and some other places that from time to time we move out of grammatical rules and we no longer have grammatical rules function in terms of pronouns, and we go from neuter pronouns instead of it, we go to things like he and him. And that happens back and forth. If you read on this, linguists on this, you'll see that when we're talking about the spirit, though the spirit demands a neuter pronoun, we often see masculine pronouns because we're talking about the spirit of God. And here's an example. I believe we're talking about he, the spirit, who's at work in the church. Only he now restrains it. He who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the, here's an interesting word. What's the word? Greek scholars, pneuma, right? The breath of his mouth. And he will bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. By the way, if you picture the the tribulation that way, the restrainer getting taken out of the way, and to put it in vernacular terms, and all hell breaking loose on earth for seven and a half years, then Christ comes back in Revelation 19 and kills them by the pneuma of his mouth. The picture of the extraction of the work of the Spirit, at least how it is in the church age, and then the return for judgment. Not that the Spirit's not at work in the tribulation. He is. People are coming to Christ. But the restraint working through the bride of Christ, gone. I think that's what's in view here, though there are some alternative views in in an occasional commentary. I just want to throw this passage up on the screen to show you parallels throughout the New Testament, which I think fit nicely on this proposed view of Second Thess 2. Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Interesting how it's described here. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The conflict between hell's work on earth and the church's work on earth being in opposition to one another. You know, here's the thing. Church is going to hold its own. Church is going to advance. The church is going to have its way. Now, this is not dominion theology. This is not post-millennialism. This doesn't mean we're going to Christianize the world, but it does mean as long as the church is here and the spirit of God is working in the church, you know, we're restraining evil on the planet. And through our work as salt and light and the work of the spirit through the church, evil is restrained. Let me give you another passage on this that may be helpful. First Corinthians chapter three, first Corinthians chapter three, verses 16 and 17. Now, I put plurals here for you because in in our English language, we don't have a second person plural unless you're from the South and you say y'all. If you say y'all, then read y'all here. But in Greek, we have it like we do in a lot of languages. We have you singular, and that means you, you, and then you plural, y'all. When you have you plural with the analogy of the temple, we're talking differently than when Paul looks at Christians and he says, you, each one of you, are a temple of the Spirit. Now, that's biblical Pauline theology. He says we, as an individual, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body, he says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we're talking about here. Do you not know that you all are, you all are, are God's temple? Now we're talking corporately. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And that God's Spirit dwells in y'all. As a temple, 
This sounds now like Ephesians, which says we are a building God's household. And each person is like a brick in this thing. And we're building God's household here, in that case, in Ephesus, in here, in Corinth. Y'all, and you could think broadly, the church universal, we're God's people. God's spirit dwells within his people. If anyone destroys God's temple, if someone wants to come against the church, the place where the spirit indwells and is active in the corporate body of Christ, then God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. You could extrapolate this beyond Corinth, and you could talk about the church on earth. The church on earth is the dwelling, the human dwelling of God's spirit. God's spirit is here. At least in my eschatology, there's going to be a harpazo, a taking away of the church, so that God then turns his attention to fulfilling the time of Jacob's trouble, predicted in the Old Testament. It's called the great time of tribulation, a greater tribulation, Jesus said, than has ever been on the earth, and then the return of Christ. Do you see the case I'm building here? The restrainer is the spirit within the church because Satan, the powers of hell, that's in constant tension. Now, we are described as the people of God, having the spirit dwelling in us corporately. Paul uses as an individual, I get that. Your body too is the temple of the spirit, but we corporately are the temple of the spirit. And as long as we are here, the spirit's activity is doing something to bat back the gates of hell. And specifically, if you took all the churches in which the spirit of God actually dwells and is active, and you took them out of society, what would society be like? I mean, aren't we the stick in the mud, not only for your friends at your office, but we are the corporate stick in the mud of the entire culture, are we not? The party poopers? Keep it up, man. That's our job. We are the spirit's conscience, if you will. We're the conscience of the country. That's what we should be and of our culture. And I know people don't like that. I don't like being that. Get over it. Get over it. All right. Restraining evil. And yet, speaking of getting over, I should make this clear. God gives some over. Clearly... Non-Christians are restrained by the the stick-in-the-mud church, by the the stick-in-the-mud people, by the party-pooper kinds of of, of movements within culture. People can't do what they want because we're still here. And yet, there are certain cultures, certain countries, certain people that God gives over. Now, the classic text on this is Romans chapter 1. And since it is a bit of a long passage, I would like you to turn there quickly. Proverbs chapter 1, then I'll put a passage or two up on the screen. Romans chapter 1. Did I say Proverbs? Yeah, that's wrong. It's on the screen. Clearly, R-O-M-A-N-S. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let's start there and read through 27. Wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. Now, that picture is contrasted with verses 16 and 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. There is a solution for those who are called, those who are Christians, where the righteousness saves the wrath. That's the picture of the umbrella illustration. The wrath of God is coming. The righteousness of God is revealed in Christ to protect those who are under the cross, if you will. The, protection of the, the, the statement of being protected by Christ. The wrath of God, though, is coming. Now, it's revealed. It's not, it's not quite here yet. If you want to see the full force of it, read 2 Peter 3, Revelation 19. It's coming. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, it's not just the church that restrains evil. The fight goes on within their own conscience, even within the nature that that we are about to talk about. It speaks against them. The beauty of nature speaks against the ugliness of their sin for what can be known about God. A God of symmetry, a God of peace, a God of all the things, a God of power. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. That's natural revelation. That's the spirit speaking in the book that he wrote called nature. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they're without excuse. For although they knew God, now again, quote unquote, they knew about him. They saw his, his attributes. They didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Look around. That's so easy to illustrate these days. They exchanged the glory, the weight of the immortal God, the gravity of him for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things, creeping things. It's ridiculous. You had the, the, the weightiness of God that you could connect with and pursue and, and seek after, but instead you're into all these little lesser things. Therefore, here's the phrase. Look how it's repeated. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. There's the phrase again. Gave them up, gave them over. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were and consumed with passion for one another. And men committed shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This picture of giving over, giving up, to where now things are celebrated, like in this passage, the, the perversion of homosexuality that is celebrated against nature, against God's revealed word, either in nature or in the written word. The Bible says all of that giving over, he's seen this, in individual lives, and with enough individual lives, we see this even in cultures, God going, okay, the work of the Spirit to restrain evil. When the battle is so, is, 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 is so fought against, so chafed against, that the impertinence of people's hearts say enough, as Psalm 2 says, we want to cast off the restraints of God. There's no longer the, the, the moral conscience in a society. We see in individual lives, and enough of them corporately, turned over. And when the turnover takes place, you can see that God, though we don't see the end all giving up of, and that's going to happen when the restraint is taken away, we see pockets of the world. We see places, cultures, nations given over. And that is a reality, though the Spirit is always working against it. All the fighting of the truth, both internally, all the speaking of the spirit externally, all the conscience that speaks, all of that, when it's denied long enough, God gives them up. To put it in the words of Proverbs 14, 34, righteousness exalts a nation. This is not just Israel, any nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The decisions here between righteous behavior and sinful behavior is made by every culture in varying degrees. And to the extent that corruption creeps in, and sin becomes the dominant pattern, then the gravity of the consequences, as we saw in Romans 1, is turned over, and we see the battle lost, if you will, at least to some extent. It is harder in some pockets of the world to see the restraint of the Spirit, and yet you see it in other places in greater measure than you do in other places. And all I'm saying is that is the active response of God. I should even say passively. He's deciding actively to passively let them go into their rebellion against the truth. God does give some more. All I'm saying is common grace, the spirit restrains evil in all the ways we discussed. Yet we see him giving over various segments of society. Quickly now, God's gracious gifts, God's gracious gifts, restraint of evil in varying degrees and gifts in varying degrees, all of these in varying degrees, we see the spirit involved in. Let me just make this statement to establish the point. All good gifts are from God, all of them. 
Everything good, that's how we started the the word grace, the idea of grace. If it's favorable, if it's good, if it's peace granting, if it's good fortune, whatever the good is, that's grace. That's the gift of God. James 1, 16 and 17, if you want a verse on it, don't be deceived. Here's an important thing to recognize. Anytime you see Paul saying that or any person saying that, in this case, James saying that, that means that people are generally deceived or at least susceptible to being deceived in these matters. What are we not supposed to be deceived about? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Everything that's good coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or no uh, shadow due to change. God is always a good God. He is merciful. And when good things happen, you can credit God to that. And because we've looked at the Spirit's activity on planet Earth, interfacing with people, to be specific and technical, you could say the Spirit of God is implementing the gifts of God around the planet. Therefore, whatever the good gift is, you credit God. If an inmate in the Orange County Jail has a good night's sleep tonight and wakes up refreshed, I don't care if he's a child molester. That good night's rest was one of the amazing, unthinkable, patient gifts of God. To to objects of wrath. He gives them his merciful good gifts. Every good gift. Now, of course, he withholds a lot of good gifts from people. And often we see some uh, equity in his dealings here, even on earth, in terms of the wicked suffering and the righteous, relatively speaking, prospering. But all those good gifts come from God. And that's a passage that just to start our discussion, we could find several more. Now, let's delve into this a little deeper. To use words, not my words, biblical words that would even make this a more provocative way to describe it. God is temporally, temporally, right, in the temporal sense, saving everybody. Everybody has the same Savior. That's not, this is not a heretical statement, not soteriologically, not eternally. But temporally, God is saving them all. I have to have you look at this one with your own eyes in your own Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Maybe a head scratcher for you when you read it. But if you tie this together with common grace and you understand the work of the Spirit on earth and His kindness, His merciful generosity and provision and care for non-Christians, you'll say, I get it. I get it. I understand what, what, what Paul is saying to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Let's start in 7 and go through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, I start here because I want you to catch this line. While bodily training is of some value. Now, again, any good gift comes from who? God. Everything good that someone experiences, God's gift. There are certain mundane things like if you eat right and you exercise, there's value in that. You will have a healthier life. It is better to to be, I don't know, 180 pounds than 380 pounds. Would you agree? Yeah, that's better. You have a better life that way. That gift of good health, there is a commensurate participation in that through, in this case, bodily training of some value. Now, godliness, you want to compare it to something eternal, it has value in every way as it holds promise for both the present life and also the life to come. Now, we could look through Proverbs, but we have no time for it, and I knew we wouldn't at this point, but I I wanted to get your mind thinking of all the general Proverbs that talk about good behavior being rewarded, that if you do justly, or even what I just read there in terms of the nation, that, that righteousness will exalt any nation. I don't care if it's Babylon, Assyria, it doesn't matter. Egypt, it will exalt it and sin, disgrace to any people. The principles of that, they transgress all, all, all nations, all geopolitical situations. Here, we're talking about godliness having benefit in this life and the next. You can do things as a non-Christian. 
Like be faithful to your spouse. Does that have benefit for this life? Does that benefit a non-Christian as well as a Christian? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that faithfulness to God's law, even though you're not a Christian, it holds value. As does if the guy who's faithful to his wife also gets up in the morning and goes to the gym. Do you see what I'm saying? There's benefit. And all of the good comes from God. Then he says this. This is a, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance for to this end we toil and strive because we have, we have our hope set on the living God, who, by the way, is the provider of all good things, who is the savior of all people. Why would he add that at this particular point? Because we've talked about godliness having benefit. The Proverbs are all about godliness having benefit, not only to Christians, not only to the Yahweh followers, but everybody, exalting any nation. We've even talked about bodily training being of some value. You know what? God's good gifts come to all people in varying degrees. He is the savior of all people, especially though we've compared certain things in this life and eternal things. Hey, he's especially our savior. He's the savior of those who believe. And that's the one that matters. If he's your savior now and giving you good gifts based on things that are happening in your life, that's fantastic. That's temporal salvation in, in, in a small s. It will matter none really a hundred years from now. Although it really matters if you're saved. Be 380 pounds and go to heaven. A lot better than being 180 pounds and going to hell. That's, I don't know if I needed to say that, but you understand what I'm saying. Temporal salvation has no real comparison. And yet God grants good to everyone. And the quid pro quo, if you will, even of something as mundane as bodily training, benefit, godly benefit. But salvation is what matters. When you read a passage like that, after all the discussion we've had tonight about common grace, and we say God is the Savior of all people, unless you're so stuck where we started with this dichotomized thinking of God only deals with Christians. God never deals with non-Christians. Here it says he's the Savior. Does that mean all non-Christians go to heaven? That's not what it means. Clearly, that's not what it means. That's not anything of what Paul said anywhere in this letter or any other letter. But it does mean that he is dispensing good gifts. He's providing and caring even for non-Christians, but especially for us in things that are eternal and really matter. This, by the way, will help for the question I get often, and that is, does God answer the prayers of non-Christians? What would your answer be at this point? I mean, you've been through an hour of this now. Well, maybe. I think you can say more than maybe. Sure. All the time? No, not all the time. If you've heard me answer this question before, I often talk about the fact that your dad can be a nice man in the neighborhood and your dad can be really nice to the neighbor kids, but he has a special kind of obligation to you to nurture, to care for, to provide for you. He, you know, your, your dad may be tucking away money for your college education, but he's not doing that for the kid down the street. But with the kid down the street, scrapes his knee in front of dad's house, will he come out with Bactine and a Band-Aid and help out? I would hope so. That's common grace. Now, the special grace of God is different than that. And all I'm telling you is when it comes to answered prayer, of course, do you think the person on the battlefield who is in a foxhole, who's praying for deliverance because he's scared and being shot at and says, God, help me, God, save me, and he gets delivered, are you not going to credit God with the good that happens in that soldier's life tonight? Well, sure I will. Why? Because every good gift comes from God. Did God respond to that prayer? God's not a computer program. He wasn't going, oh, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Is he saved because God answers a non-Christian's prayer? No, of course not. But God is saving in a temporal sense. Everyone. Does he answer all the prayer? No. Proverbs 15, 29. I didn't put it on the screen, but it says that the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now that's a proverb. And you can say, okay, that's the general principle, but it doesn't mean that God never, ever responds to a non-Christian's prayer. But there is a distance. Just like you could say a good dad may be you know, distant from a neighbor that lives in the, you know, down, the, down the block, but he's close to his own child. 
Let me make this more clear maybe with this. He grants a variety of gifts. Matthew 5 couldn't say it any more clearly. Matthew chapter 5. Let me just read it for you because we're running out of time. Verse 43, you've heard, this is 43 through 48. You can jot it down. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You've heard it said, love your, your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's what you've heard. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He makes his son rise on the evil and the good. Wow, that seems indiscriminate. Not fully indiscriminate, but it is the dispensing of God's good gifts to both Christians and non-Christians. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust fields. If you love those who love you, what reward is that? Don't even the tax collectors do that? If you only greet those who are your brothers, what more are you doing than they? Do not the Gentiles do the same? You must be teleos, perfect, just as your heavenly father is teleos. He does things in a kind way, merciful way. Matter of fact, I put this verse up here as a cross-reference, Luke 6, 35. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Is God kind to evil people? Answer, Luke 6, 35. Yes, it's common grace of God. He gives even to non-Christians. And when you are, are kind to non-Christians, you're, you're chip off the old block. You're sons of the Most High. Now, when will that stop? The day of judgment. There will come a time when his goodness runs out. The Bible says, here's, second, uh, here's um, Romans chapter uh, 2, verse 4. He, his kindness is to lead us to repentance. The kind gifts of God are to lead people to get protection under the cross. But if they don't, at the end of their lives, they have to face their maker. And it's a dreadful thing, as Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. But he grants a variety of, of gifts along the way. Six, I'll do this as quickly as we can. And we'll talk a lot about saving grace. And we'll talk about the Spirit's work in all of that. But let me just put these up for you real quick. He brings to non-Christians now conviction. Because you cannot become a Christian unless you are convicted of your sins. That happens, by the way, when you're a non-Christian. Think that through. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, speaking of the parakletos, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. And that will be a source of conviction. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You no longer see me. The standard will not be lived out there in a human being, in the, in the person of Christ. They will have that conviction, though, because the Spirit will up their conscience. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged, and they will recognize in their own hearts, as the Spirit works in their hearts, that they are heading for judgment if they don't repent. That conviction came to you, if you're a Christian, before you became a Christian. Think about that. You got convicted of your sin as you were being prepared by the Spirit to become a Christian. That conviction came upon you. Now, we can get all tied up on the Spirit and when you're saved, but let's just be clear. Some of you were convicted for months before you came to repentance and faith. The work of the Spirit was the grace of God to an unregenerate person. Would you be regenerate? Yes. That's a move from common grace to saving grace. But in the process, it's the common grace, if you will, some would argue with that, on the way to special or saving grace. And as a Christian, you can map that out in your own life. Some of you I don't know, could be months, could be years. You felt the conviction of the Spirit before you're convicted. Then, of course, in regenerating the lost. And I just want to be specific about this. As Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. At the moment of conversion, God is justifying an ungodly person. His faith is counted as righteousness. And Titus 3. And since we have one minute left, let's turn to this passage, Titus chapter 3. And we'll pick this up, or at least some of the ancillary issues that are related to the Spirit's work in conversion when we get together again. Titus chapter 3. Look at verse 3. 3 through 6, if you're taking notes and want to look it up later. Titus 3, 3 through 6. For we ourselves were once foolish 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy and hated, hated by others and hating one another. Okay, now that's a scene of a non-Christian, an unregenerate person. That's who we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... That's not just in the timeline of the Bible, but when it happened and the appearing of that, the dispensing that happened in your life, it happened to people that were slaves to various passions, led astray, passing our days in malice and envy. We had sin. We were all about sin, but he saved us, verse 5. Not because of the works done in righteousness, he's justifying the wicked, but according to his own mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Who is the object of that? Verse 3, the foolish, disobedient, the ones being led astray, enslaved to passions and pleasures, passing their day in malice and envy and hated by others and hating each other. The Spirit of God got in there and converted, regenerated, made new the lost person. Now, I know technically you could say, well, isn't that a part of special grace? It is, but it happens to unregenerate people who become regenerate because of the Spirit's work. But, all right, I'll pray for it. God, thanks for this crowd. Thanks for their love of your word. Thanks for this discussion on common grace. And as I thought about it, as I admitted up front, I just am grateful to look at it for a full hour because we often neglect this topic. Can't even think about having heard a sermon completely on common grace. So thanks for helping us think through aspects of this. May it help us in our working through various issues that relate to how do you deal with non-Christians. And I pray some of the discussions and especially the passages we've looked at would really minister to our understanding of your work in this world. So dismiss us now, God, with a sense of your uh, presence and growth in our own thinking in terms of the knowledge and, uh, and advancement just of our, our own understanding and love for you be this study. Thanks for this crowd. God bless and pray in Jesus.